the San Francisco Experience Podcast. Brought to you by Jim Herlihy, independent commentary from a Silicon Valley perspective for a global audience, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 24, Episode 14, Our American Experiment, in conversation with Byron Williams. Our guest today is Byron Williams, syndicated columnist, author, host of NPR's radio show, The Public Morality, and adjunct professor of divinity at Wake Forest University. His writings and commentaries are always imbued with moral clarity. He's a student of the American Constitution and the Declaration of Independence in particular. He, like many of us, struggles to reconcile the utopian aspirations of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness against our history, which all too often has fallen short protecting minority rights. He makes us take note of the paradoxical promise of liberty contrasted against slavery, Jim Crow, and marginalized minorities. Yet every 4th of July, he listens to NPR's reading of the Declaration of Independence with the same idealistic wonder as when he first heard it as a young boy. I met Byron on a trip to Israel in 1990, organized by the Jewish Community Federation for Bay Area Leaders, and I've been a fan of his work for over 30 years. He joins us from his office in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Hello, Byron, and welcome to the show. Jim, my friend, so good to be with you. I can't believe we've known each other over 30 years, but it's a real honor to be in conversation with you, sir. Well, Byron, same here, same here. Byron, tell us about your latest book, Our American Experiment. And of course, I've had had the opportunity to read your other works, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But let's just focus right now. Give us a short overview of our American experiment. Sure. Our American experiment actually started as a catharsis. And it was right after Kyle Rittenhouse was found not guilty of shooting people in Wisconsin. And I felt really frustrated. I wasn't surprised, but I was frustrated by the outcome. And so I just wrote a short story, just sort of playing with the notion. uh, I think we're going to talk about this one later. Playing with the notion, what if Kyle Rittenhouse, what if if an African-American did the same thing Kyle Rittenhouse did? And just sort of playing with that and how does that feel? And so I wrote that one and I was kind of like, "Mm." and then... I was actually listening to the symphony and the conductor said that was crafted about a man who was going to die and be executed Uh around the 19th century. And then that, then it prompted me to to do a short story about that. And then I just, so so I kind of go, Hey, and that's sort of how it snowballed. Uh Of course I have read the book and for the benefit of our listeners, the book is divided into two sections. The first nine chapters are a collection of short stories, all fictionalized. The second part of the book is a collection of actual essays. They're not fictionalized. And what we're going to do today, we're going to take three or four of the fictionalized short stories from the first chapter, discuss them, and then come on to two of the nonfiction essays at the end. So let's start with that Kyle Rittenhouse story. It's chapter two, and the young man, young African-American man in Washington, D.C., is a young man by the name of Jamal Robinson. Tell us about Jamal Robinson and his story, because it's a story, it's a kind of a mirror image of Kyle Rittenhouse, but with a but with a different outcome. Right. If I may, Jim, let me just also say that all of the fictionalized stories are rooted in real-life yes. events, hence our American experiment. So Jamal Robinson is a young man 
who he's a senior in high school. He's joined the Marines. He's going to start basic training right after he gets done with high school. And then January 6th happens. Mm-hmm. And he's following it, and he feels he has to do something to protect the Capitol. Mm-hmm. So he ends up running to the Capitol, and he ends up what it, uh, what it appears. I'll say it like that for because you read it, Jim. So I'll say it like that. Right. It appears he shoots and kills two people, mm-hmm. and then he's put on trial. But many of the facts of that one, I sort of followed the Kyle Rittenhouse yes. case. Mm-hmm. I think there's a twist at the end that some may not be expected when they read it. Spoiler alert, we won't give away the <laughs> ending, but it's a it's just it's a fascinating view of how so often the American experience is different for African-Americans. And you what? and you highlight that in the story in a very poignant way that this young man who is at the beginning of his career, he's obviously, he loves his country, he's signed up for the Marines, he's about to, and he's he wants to protect the Capitol in many ways that uh, Kyle Rittenhauser, when he was in Kenosha, Wisconsin, was trying to protect people in that case. But right. the, the outcome in both cases is so different. The, the facts are very similar, but the outcome is different. And we have to assume that the outcome is different because Jamal was African-American and Kyle Rittenhauser was white. Well, I think, you know, Jim, what you really touch on and which is really sort of the premise of of all the books, of all the short stories, is that there is this larger thing that all of us participate in called the American experiment. We all participate in it. And we see it all through a different lens. It's the same movie, but we see it through a different lens mm-hmm. based on our experiences. So each of us, if you are, if your lineage is African-American, if your lineage is Irish, if your lineage is Middle Eastern, you all come to the notion of liberty and equality in very, very different ways. Mm-hmm. We all believe it, but we have different experiences. And I think that's one of the, the greatnesses of America. And one of the tensions is that we want to homogenize the fact that we all have a different lens. And that's very difficult to achieve, in my view. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to chapter three. We're moving into the world of politics. We're moving into the scene opens where a young, ambitious African-American, it's election night in Mississippi, and he's the first African-American to be elected as governor of Mississippi, but as a Republican. Tell us how the story right. Tell us how the story unfolds for Terrence Sanford. Well, Terrence Sanford, first African-American to be elected in the state of Mississippi as governor, very conservative, and has really taken up a mantle against gay and lesbian brothers and sisters. That's really a crus- almost a crusade for him. And his conservative bona fides sort of sweep him to in, in the office. I think the turning point in that story is when he's in college, he finds out that the organizer for the march on Washington was a man by the name of Bayard Rustin, yes. who was openly gay even at that time. Mm-hmm. And when he finds that out, he makes these loose associations with King, and he then considers the march on Washington for jobs and freedom to just be something that is a cover for the for the so-called gay agenda. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of how, that's sort of his it's the politics of passion, the politics of fear, the politics of hate. And he rides that to the governor's mansion. Mm-hmm. But then it turns out that he himself is a closeted gay man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, which is not uncommon 
when you see that type of vitriol. Yes. You, you know, when you see that type, of, and unfortunately, in, in my view, at least, in our present discourse, we see a level of vitriol with some that's just not healthy, and you and we need there's some other avenues to explain what otherwise doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And so I think that Terry Sanford falls into that category. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to chapter number five, the death penalty. Okay. And of course, here we have a, a man who has been falsely accused and unfortunately convicted of murder. And he's on death row. Tell us how the story unfolds. And I'm glad you said the man because you probably, you already know since you've read it. He I didn't give him a name. Right. And he's really, a, he wakes up, he's going to be executed that night. Yes. And he sort of is negotiating the fact that he knows today's his last day. Yes. On earth. And he is innocent. And how do you reconcile knowing that you are innocent, but you are unjustly put to death. And it raises the question, even for for proponents of capital punishment, I've always held that if if you support capital punishment, there has to be an error percentage that you're comfortable with. Yes. That the government, I'm okay with with 0.1%. You have to have an error percentage that you're comfortable with, or it doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And so he's part of that error percentage. And so whatever he may or may not have done, he didn't do this. And should we be in the business of putting innocent people to death? I guess more importantly, should we be in the business of even potentially putting innocent people to death? Mm -hmm. And we see him trying to reconcile what I would consider an absurd reality. Mm -hmm. Again, he's waiting for his counselor. I don't want to say chaplain, but he's waiting for his counselor to come to talk with him, to talk him through the last few minutes of his life yeah, to give him even, some calm. And, I, and it really, I, I think they sort of make a deal that he's just going to come and walk with him. There, there's nothing else to say. We're just going to get this over. And he also raises some moral questions for the victim's family. Mm-hmm. And he even prays for them at the end. But he will this bring them peace? Will this bring them justice? Mm-hmm. Because as he laments, if it doesn't, that's a cruel trick to play on an individual if that does not happen. Mm-hmm. It's a story of strength. It's a story of profound resignation to your fate. Even though this it's an unjust fate, but he's resigned to it. He doesn't want last-minute, 11th-hour appeals to the governor to stay the execution. He wants to get it over with. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine, well, I guess I could imagine because I wrote it, yeah. but if that was my life, I don't know if I could reconcile it like that. I agree with you. I mean, if I were in that position, God forbid, if I were in that position, I think I'd, I would have used every last opportunity vehicle to prevent it from happening, especially if I knew in my heart of hearts that I was, uh, I was innocent. But it's a story of profound resignation and acceptance, which is very moving. And also, Jim, you mentioned a different lens in a previous question. This is a very, very different lens because as he as he recounts, 
his feeling was he, the, the first process was to dehumanize him so that the people, the jury didn't see him as human, mm-hmm. which made it easier for the death penalty to even occur. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're right. And I think with that, his profound resignation, his acceptance of this injustice is something that I think all of us need to read that, wherever your position is on capital punishment, all of us need to read that and sort of understand what's going through this man's mind at the very last minute and the injustice of it. Let's move on to chapter nine. The other thing is I make no bones about the fact I've been on on the board of, of organizations against the death penalty. I have been, I've, I've argued against the death penalty throughout my writing career. However, this particular chapter that we focused on, as well as the others in this fictionalized section, I am not trying to convince anyone to change their opinion. I am trying to convince people to just think about the position they hold, whatever that may be. You've accomplished that here with this chapter. And so for anyone who is a death penalty supporter or opponent, really commend Chapter 5, Death Penalty, to your attention. It's going to shake your views, whatever they may be. Let's move on to Chapter number 9, Solitude. We all, at different times in our life, different times in our day, different times in our, our life, we've all had to deal with solitude. Sometimes solitude that we seek out, sometimes solitude which is thrust upon us, sometimes solitude that force of circumstances, death of a loved one, a divorce, abandonment forces solitude upon us. Talk to us about this chapter of solitude and the struggle that the individual has with solitude. It's a very interesting conversation that he has with solitude. Well, the story behind solitude, I'm looking at all the short stories and I said to myself, I need to say something about mental health. Yes. Because it's something that I struggle with. And quick story, when I was writing in in Oakland, when I was a columnist for the then Oakland Tribune, yes. I would get per column 25 to 30 emails in response to a column. Uh-huh. I did one on mental health mm-hmm. and shared my struggles with mental health. I got over 600 emails. Oh, gosh. Wow. And I actually had people stop me on the street and thank me for writing in. I had people writing to me, you know, sharing their stories and more than one person saying, don't please don't share this because I'm not out to my friends and family yet. That, those are literally the words they use. Mm-hmm. And so it just really, really impacted me on just how pervasive it is. That just most of them are sort of social, political, but solitude is a social social piece in a different area. Mm -hmm. And so what I did with that piece is I've just sort of recounted my own feelings and my own struggles with mental health, being up and thinking about it and, and my struggles with anxiety and just sort of grappling with it and letting the reader eavesdrop on just some of the things I struggle with to navigate my life. There's a fascinating conversation that takes place where On the one hand, he's at his best. He's at his most creative. His creative juices are flowing in part because of solitude. And he says that there are times when he's taken medication, deal with to medicate concerns, his anxiety about solitude. There are times when he's taken medication, but that that medications had the effect of killing off the creative juices, the creative urge. So he's has this love-hate relationship with solitude.
attitude. On the one hand, he hates some of the obvious downsides of being alone, being by himself. But on the other hand, he recognizes that solitude has fed his creative juices. Talk to us about that struggle. I don't know that most listeners would describe it that way. So I, I, oh. I felt as though it was a, it was a fascinating, a unique description. Well, I, I, I'm going I'm to start with a word that you use in your introduction, because it is the paradox. Mm-hmm. It is the paradox that, that and, and I'm right now I'm speaking from my own experience. Yes. It is this paradox where that solitude allows me this creativity. And, right. I, and I remember 20 years ago, I, I tried to take meds and I just wasn't the same. Right. You know, I just, it, it just, I just wasn't, it wasn't dull. So in that sense, but, but solitude and the ideas flow and creativity flows. And so that's a part of it. But the other part is that I'm alone, I'm aloof, I'm isolated, I'm not communicative. I'm, it's a double-edged sword. And that's sort of what I wanted to reveal in that passage. Not to say it's one or the other, though it's good that I'm creative, but just the space that I have found myself is a double-edged sword that my mental health creates. Mm-hmm. For, the, for the benefit of our listeners, I've known you for 30 years. And this is kind of a revelation to me. I've always found you to be a a very outgoing, life and soul of the party kind of guy. So this is a bit of a revelation. I'll tell you what inspired solitude. What inspired solitude, I mean, beside my own personal experience, that format that that piece takes. Yes goes back to Thomas Jefferson had fallen in love with a woman by the name of Marie Causeway after his wife died. He met her in Paris. Yes. And she was married, and that didn't go anywhere. And after that, Jefferson tried to reconcile his feelings by ha- writing this piece called Head and Heart. Uh-huh. And so it's a conversation between his head and his heart. Uh-huh. And so that is what sort of inspired me to write this piece with my mental health and my rational self, if you will. And it's sort of like, a, it's like a head and a heart type of type of piece. And, and I do think that the anxiety wants to take more credit for my success than is due. I want to stand up to it. I don't need you, but the anxiety has a sort of way, as you know, of saying, well, you need me more than you think. And it's sort of a, a frustrating conundrum at times. Let's move on to the two remaining essays that we want to talk about. And these are the nonfiction essays. The first essay it deals with the, the wealthy white landowner, and then the second essay is about whiteness. So let's focus on that essay about the wealthy white landowner. Okay, that one, I think that one was called The Return of the, of the White Male Landowner. And where that comes from is that when the country was founded, most of the states for full citizenship had white male landowner provisions in order to have full citizenship. Mm -hmm. In fact, the Massachusetts Constitution, which is the oldest constitution that we have, uh, the Massachusetts Constitution specifically stated at the time that in order to be a member of the state legislature, you had to have a a certain net worth to Mm -hmm. be in the lower chamber, the upper chamber, or to be governor. So what it did... Those sort of provisions throughout the states really limited full citizenship to no more. At the, at best, 25 percent of the fledgling colonies had full citizenship because you you had to be all three. You had to be you had to be white, male, and a landowner. And then there came a point where you had a number of men who didn't qualify. Well, then uh, some of those states made marriage a property owner provision. Mm-hmm. So, so that's where we start. So we start with with all of the women, all the people of color, 
all non-white males, white males who didn't own property mm-hmm. as disenfranchised. Mm-hmm. Now, again, going back to introduction, there's the paradox. The paradox again, yes. We form a country based on liberty and equality and an overwhelming majority of the country is disenfranchised. Byron, you're a student of history and you're working on a project right now on the Declaration of Independence, which we'll talk about a little bit later. When the founding fathers, and of course there were no founding mothers, when the founding fathers wrote that document, particularly the Declaration of Independence and then subsequently the Constitution, and the Declaration of Independence is what, 420 words approximately? Yeah, well, the, the, the first part, the first part is about 400 words, yeah. Yes. And it, when they were writing that, it's it's very utopian, it's, it's very high-flown, it's very idealistic. Was there hypocrisy there when they looked around and they, they saw slavery, they saw... Uh, you know, this vast, disenfranchised mass of people out there, women, non-landowners. How did they reconcile that? Did they bother to reconcile that? Was it okay at that time to speak in a, was it okay at that time to be, to not apply those ideals to your day-to-day life? Try to explain that. Try to explain that conundrum to us. Well, I sort of laugh because I was going to go, well, the first answer is yes, and yes, yes, and no, 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 no. But actually, actually, I think we have to remember the primary reason that the Continental Congress got together, the primary reason was to secede from Great Britain occupation. Mm -hmm. That was the primary reason they got together. Everything else was a secondary consideration. Mm -hmm. So everything else, if it wasn't about seceding from Great Britain, got pushed to a secondary position. Mm -hmm. Interesting enough, there's a letter that Abigail Adams writes on John as he's going to Philadelphia to to the convention. It's dated March 31st, 1776, and she's writing him and she says, you know, I'm glad that all this is happening, but remember the ladies. When you all get together, you guys can be just as much tyrants as anybody else. Mm-hmm. And I, when I teach my, when I teach my course on civic history, what I, I always sort of pinpoint that is sort of the unofficial beginning of the suffrage movement for women, mm-hmm. at least documented. Abigail Adams in 1776 saying, remember the ladies. So they were, they were aware. They were very aware of the incongruence. But the first, but the first priority was secession from Great Britain. Mm-hmm. In fact, if you, for those who like classic film, who are devoted to Turner Classic Movies like I am, every 4th of July, Turner Classic Movies plays the movie the the fourth of july Uh Uh, and it's sort of a musical and they talk about this very point they they raise this very point so they understood it was an incongruence but they here and here's the other problem with the paradox because they were committed to liberty and equality on paper obviously found it easier to kick a can down the road the legacy of that decision is that the founding generation had a hand in creating the climate for the Civil War mm. mm-hmm. and also creating the climate for the Civil Rights Movement. How's that for a resume? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Talk about the long hand of history. Right, because because they kicked the can down the road with pretty much giving slavery constitutional legitimacy with mm-hmm. the three-fifths compromise and the fugitive slave 
provisions in the Constitution. And then you have the, the Missouri Compromise, and you have the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and the, the Compromise of 1850, then you have the Civil War. But at the same time, you have these freedom fighters in the form of the Civil Rights Movement looking at those very same documents, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and legitimizing their quest for equality. So I think the founders, founding generation gets, gets uh, it should be bequeathed responsibility for both of those seminal events. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to the last essay that you wrote, Whiteness. How did that essay come together? And tell us about the initial reaction when that essay was first published. Uh, well, it came together. Something about me that, that, you, that you, you may, I think you know a little about, is I am a lover of cigars. Yes. <laughs> and... I was in a cigar lounge and we were just talking because in a cigar lounge you can have conversations in many respects you can't have other places. And so I said to someone, well, what is whiteness? Uh-huh. I go, oh, are we not talking about a social construct? Yeah. And that's sort of what prompted the, the idea. And so what I was trying to do there is show that it is a social construct. And I, wanted, I, I, I tried to make clear, I'm not saying that everyone who is white falls into into this construct, but I think at times it can be so subtle that you don't know it exists. Just like there are things that happen for me as a man that that are subtle that I don't even think about. And I think that 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 was the the whole point that I was trying to raise there and just trying to get people to think that this this long arm of whiteness is pervasive in the American project. You know, certainly in, in our lifetimes, my lifetime, we had Martin Luther King we had Brown versus Board of Education. We had the Civil Rights Movement. We had the Civil Rights Act. We had the Voting Rights Act. We've had the Fair Housing Act. Have all of all of those landmark social changes and reforms during the 1950s, 60s, 70s, without question, have addressed many, not all, many of the uh, the shortcomings in our society, particularly as regards African-Americans. But so where do we go from here? So those reforms of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s were really, in a sense, sort of a down payment, if you will. I guess you have to look back on our history and say, you know, since 1619, when the first African-Americans arrived in the United States until 1863, you're dealing with 300 plus years of history of slavery in the United States, followed by uh, from 1863 to 1964, so 100, 101 years, you had 100 years of Jim Crow. And so since 1964, we've had 59 years, 300 plus years of slavery, 100 plus years of Jim Crow, and about 59 years of civil rights, call it that. Where do we go with whiteness? Some of the aspects of whiteness that you outline in this essay, which are subtle and some are not, how do we address that? How do we how do we well, correct that? That's such a great question because as I'm thinking about your answer through a historical lens that we had reconstruction and at some point the North decided that they had did it they had done enough. Yes, right. Ended, I don't know right or wrong, but they, they made a decision that's enough. So some might say that the fifty nine years you just articulated is more than enough for things to be for things to change. Here's what I would say just, just you know, at the end of World War Two, in nineteen watch nineteen forty four Congress passed and Franklin Roosevelt signed, which I think is the most important domestic legislation to ensure permanent middle class with the GI Bill of Rights. Right. 
There was a congressman in Mississippi, God, his name escapes me right now, who was basically chair, he was, I think he was chair of appropriations. He got a subtle change to the GI Bill of Rights. And that subtle change was that the money would be distributed locally. Mm, mm-hmm. So what that did was that denied, you know, African-Americans who served loans. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just in the South, but also in the North. There were certain places. That was, so that's what redlining comes in. There's right. certain places you could buy. So I guess my question would be to add to your very profound question is, at what point when there's a systematic denial, let's say with housing ownership, because we know that's the best way to, to accumulate wealth. Mm-hmm. At what point when there's a systematic denial of wealth through redlining and, and where people could buy homes over several generations, at what point can you make up for that? Or do you just say, oh, well, and I really don't have an answer. I'm not advocating one way or the other. But I think what it gets down to is that I think, Jim, we have to be honest about our history. Mm-hmm. Not in the sense of gotcha, Aha, I'm right, Jim, you're wrong. Not in that sense, but we, we've got to be honest about who we are because if we're honest, it doesn't lessen the greatness of America. Mm-hmm. If we're honest about who we are, the Declaration of Independence is still in my view, one of the greatest document ever created in terms of the aspirations of human beings. It doesn't diminish that, but we, but if we can't be honest, then we can't have coaching conversations. Mm-hmm. And, in, and, we're, and we're apt to see each other's adversaries. You know, I think you've achieved that with this book of essays, both the fictionalized essays and the nonfiction essays. You don't give all the answers. Who could? <laughs> but, but what you've done with each of these essays, particularly the first nine essays, where paradox is present in and all of them. It's, it's very thought-provoking. It's uh, it it makes for at times uncomfortable reading, but it's thought-provoking reading. I th- thoroughly enjoyed reading it. I learned a lot from it. I'd recommend it to to anyone to to read it. What are what are your closing thoughts, Byron? As we uh, as, as we draw this podcast to a close here, because this is an opportunity to tell the listeners that this is this is a different kind of book. It's a thought-provoking book. There isn't an agenda here. There really aren't answers here. But like all great works of fiction, it it challenges us. It it makes us ask questions of ourselves. What are your thoughts? My overall project is really rooted in my profound love for this country. And it, it doesn't mean that I look at the country through rose-colored glasses or, or embrace some kind of Pollyannish ethos. But the love is rooted in the fact that I can be honest. And I think part of my role is to be honest and authentic about what I see. Now, that doesn't that doesn't mean that um, I hate the country. We need to be honest. And that's what I try to do. Is I just I'm trying to prod people to think like you, you mentioned the death penalty one. If you're for the death penalty, you have to still think about those things that that that, that individual has talked about in his last days mm-hmm. on Earth, on Earth. If, if you if you are for we didn't talk about this, say, but if you're for wokeness, you got to think about that professor. In my view, Jim, we only want to hold a part of the American narrative that we like. Right. But America's so dynamic. You got to hold both. You got to hold what you like and what you don't like. Mm-hmm. You got to hold both and negotiate it. And that's what I'm trying to do. Is I'm trying to get us to the good, hold the, the good and the bad and negotiate them both. I think you've achieved that here. I think you've achieved that with these essays. 
I think that, again, for a lot of people who read your book, there may be moments when they're uncomfortable. A lot of people who read the book say it doesn't go far enough, but that's what good fiction does. Good fiction is is meant to to provoke us, to make us to make us uncomfortable with views that we've had for a long time and to see things from a different perspective through a different lens. And each one of these essays I think does that. So I would thoroughly recommend this Our American Experiment. This is a great Christmas Day read. This is a great conversation piece for Christmas dinner. And probably for that cigar on the porch after Christmas, <laughs> after Christmas dinner. Uh, of course, you'll remember you sat on my porch in Sonoma and we smoked cigars. It's a it's a terrific book. It's thought provoking. It's one I think that all of us need to read. And you're right. There are good aspects to our society. There are not so good aspects to our society. And you're serving that up here in in a very in, in not a judgmental fashion, but just a just a, a very straightforward manner without any any agenda hidden or otherwise so kudos to you it's a it's a terrific read thank you my friend uh, those, those, those are very those are very kind words and if and if, if some of your listeners who read the book want to have me for zoom they all they need to do is contact you and you know how to get in touch with me i'll be happy to appear in a zoom conversation if people want to be in dialogue about the book i'm happy to extend that offer and byron how can our listeners follow you in addition to that kind offer to appear in a zoom conversation with any of our listeners or listeners who for instance might have a book club or might have might belong to another organization where you wearing your academic hat can actually sit down and, and talk to them and to their audience in, in the candid, open fashion that you've done here. Okay, so if anybody wants to get hold of me, they can, first of all, they can go to the podcast version of my radio show, just applications of public morality, or they can go to my website, which is byronspeaks.org, uh-huh. and they can follow me on Twitter and Facebook. And what is your Twitter handle? BC underscore Williams. BC underscore Williams. That's your Twitter handle. Uh-huh. Terrific. Again, Byron, I want to thank you for taking time to join us today. And just before I let you go, can you share with us the new project that you're working on? Well, the last project that I'm working on, actually, there are two. A book that you're well familiar with. I'm doing a, a second edition of 1963. This should be out in February. Sort of an updated of where we are today version of it. And then I have a, um, an, I have a novel coming out later in 2024 called Safer Democracy, situated in World War I, and it juxtaposes how African-Americans are treated on the front lines mm-hmm. and the news are gone with how German-Americans were treated at home and that everything that we did to the Japanese-Americans in World War II, we practice and learn from what we did to the Germans in World War I. Mm. Busy man, Byron. Once again, thank you for sharing those uh, those upcoming projects that you're working on. We'll have you back to talk about them. And again, thank you for joining us today and thoroughly recommend our American experiment to my listeners. Great Christmas present. Thank you, my friend. Take care. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 481. Listen to us on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Pandora, YouTube, 18 platforms in total, and join our listener audience that spans 60 countries. Feedspot has recently recognized us as a top 25 California news podcast. This has been the San Francisco Experience with Jim Herlihy coming to you from San Francisco. 